Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here today for our final 11th hour lecture of this week. Tomorrow, at the same hour, we will have a faculty reading, which you will not want to miss. It'll be great. If you could please kindly turn off your cell phones, mute your cell phones, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much. So today, we have the scintillating Christine Hemp. Christine Hemp has aired her essays and poems on NPR's Morning Edition, and a poem of hers has traveled over a billion miles on a NASA mission to monitor the prenatal activity of stars. How cool is that? I wish my poem were out there. Her awards include a Washington State Artist Trust Fellowship for Literature, an Iowa Review Award for Nonfiction, and the Harvard University Extension Award for Teaching Writing. She has been selected to travel statewide for the 2019 and 2020 Humanities Washington Speakers Bureau with her talk, quote, from Homer to hashtags, which explores our changing language. Her forthcoming memoir, Wild Ride Home, that's the title, is scheduled for publication in spring 2020. So put that on your Goodreads to read list so you remember in spring 2020. She lives in Port Townsend, Washington with two horses, two cats, and one husband. Today, Christine presents the lecture, The Writing Life, which will explore the nature of dailiness and how quotidian activities might shape our art. What does it take to create a whole life, one that will nourish us and allow our writing to flow out of it rather than squeeze into it. Man, isn't that the million dollar question? Please join me in welcoming Christine Hemp. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Come here for the writing life. Thank you, Rachel, for that lovely introduction. And I've enjoyed all the week's 11th hours, including my friend Sands Hall's yesterday. So it's fun to be here on Thursday. And in the spring, when I first contemplated creating this talk, I was thinking a lot about the accelerated times we live in. No, how, no matter how much we get done, it seems we are being asked every day to get more done, to produce more, to sell, to be out there, to get followers, enough likes and shares, more and more and more as if this outside recognition of ourselves is the only measurement of our worth. With such demands on our time and focus, how can we even keep up with flossing? Or cleaning the cat box? Or getting our bills paid? Or changing the oil? Let's face it, the anxiety surrounding our political and global situation, both perceived and real, is reaching epidemic proportions. And the hyped up climate is hard enough for the software designer or systems manager, a school teacher or nonprofit director. But if we are artists, and by that title I include all the arts, this frenetic bandwidth of need can be supremely difficult, simply because making art is very different. It requires a space that has nothing to do really with product, achievement, 
or time frame. As Saul Bellow said, art has something to do with the achievement of stillness in the midst of chaos, a stillness which characterizes prayer. The space we need to write must have room for pondering, for long spaces of staring out the window, for walking and not thinking at all, but simply being with the work we are meant to do. In order to keep ourselves sane and poised for this work, we must protect ourselves and nourish that stillness so that we can be a counterbalance to the nonstop news feeds and adrenaline rushes that have come to dictate our public and private discourse. I think it's Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, who talks about our cultures exchanging convenience for content and speed for meaning. True creative work, he says, whether it be a physicist unpacking the mysteries of dark matter or a poet finding just the right word for a bird's wing, requires spaciousness psychically and physically to focus deeply without distraction. So today, I want to explore this notion of the writer's life, not so much as what we do, how many books we've published, how many awards we've won, how many pages we produce a day, so much as who we are, how we live, and what is truly important to us. Because first, we have a life. And our work flows from this, including our daily peregrinations, our ordinary lives, which deeply inform our art. But a life just doesn't appear. We make it like a good poem. So how we approach our writing really depends on how we see our whole life. And we're not talking about lifestyle here. That's something sold by our seductive and sparkly capitalist culture. No, a lifestyle is a commodity. A life is your own temple. It's what we create for ourselves. And it seems to me that it's not so much how to fit writing into our busy lives, but create lives that release our passions and imaginations naturally, daily, in ways even beyond our essays, memoirs, or short stories. I've always loved this quotation from what Stanley Kunitz said in a wonderful little book. Uh, he lived to be 100, you know, our former poet laureate, Stanley Kunitz. He has a wonderful uh, little essay called The Wisdom of the Body. And he says, when I'm asked by young poets what advice I have to offer them about the conduct of their lives, I'm inclined to warn them about the dangers of hothouse anemia. Do something else, I tell them. Develop any other skill. Turn to any other branch of knowledge. Learn how to use your hands. Try woodworking, bird watching, gardening, sailing, weaving, pottery, archaeology, oceanography, spelunking, animal husbandry. Take your pick. Whatever activity you engage in as a trade or a hobby or field study will tone up your body and clear your head. At the very least, it will help you with your metaphors. <laughs> That's good, isn't it? You know, and I think of how many poets and, and writers have uh, done different kinds of trades and different kind of jobs. Wallace Stevens is in, in his insurance office. 
that our own uh, Max Garland, who was a postal carrier for, for many years. All these things are not separate, really, from who we are. And so when we think about other writers and how they work, I'm really nosy. I don't know about you guys, but don't you love to see other people's writing studios, especially famous writers, right? You just, I just adore it. And so I'm going to show you a few studios today. And as I'm, as I'm showing them, I want you to think about your own writing space and what kind of things, what kind of feeling is in the space where you go to write. I know, um, Robert Lowell wrote on his bed. Maybe you do that. That's cool. What is your, makes your space special? But I'm, I'm very nosy. I go to writers. Uh, how, when I lived in England, I couldn't wait to see the Bronte house and all that. But here's one of my favorite photographs. There's E.B. White. Doesn't that look just divine? One typewriter, one piece of paper, and the main bay out his window. Toni Morrison. Donald Hall, I had, in my 20s, I went to visit him, and his house, to me, as a young poet, was just absolutely extraordinary. Everything uh, in the house, he lived with the poet Jane Kenyon, his wife, and everything was just crammed with books and beauty, and I was just kind of like agog. That's in his old age. Isn't that a great photo? Ah, Tina Fey, mess, right? I mean, if you think of your own writing space, maybe you're really, really messy. That's not anything to be ashamed of. How do you work? Maybe you work really well with mess, right? This is the coolest place. I went to, my husband is Norwegian, and we were in Bergen and went to see the composer Edvard Grieg's home, which is huge and massive, but he had to get away from all the social life. He was quite well known and very successful in his life, so he had lots of parties, but he'd get away to this fabulous, fabulous little studio right down on the fjord. He had his piano. Isn't that just the coolest place? Don't you want to sit there and work? I do. I loved that place. And Agnes Martin, when I lived in Taos, she's one of our greatest paint, painters of our time. Uh, she lived, she's dead now, but uh, I had the uh, good fortune of being, I was an art critic at the time for a magazine, and I had the good fortune of interviewing her and getting to go to her home. And this is a picture in her studio. And one of the most beautiful things she, she talked about was um, at 85, she was just so sharp and interesting. And she said, before I start a painting, I have a complete inspiration. And, and she said, when you're in this rat race, you need to turn your back to the world and rest. And this is the coolest thing. She said, it's so quiet looking out. Isn't that beautiful? It's like she found her own stillness for those fabulous horizontal paintings. And um, I have learned very much from my uh, visual artist friends on, on not just how to work, but how to look at the work. And they have informed a lot of my writing, not just because I'm writing about visual art, but because my artist friends show me things. Here's Dylan Thomas's uh, little little place right there in Wales. Anybody been there? That's quite a little cabin. And here's my friend and really well-known ceramic artist, Anne Hirondell. 
And she's the kind of person whose studio is totally tidy no matter what's going on. You could never keep up with her. But her work is so, so beautiful. Can you see those okay? Should we need it, need it a little bit darker? Are you cool with this? Stand up and shout if you're not. I demand to see that blue. Because, <laughs> I mean, look at that green. I mean, it's just, like, gorgeous. And many artists, both artists and writers, and have gardens as inspiration. And I'm sure many of you are gardeners. Here in the Midwest, my gosh, the beautiful gardens. My friends who live here have just, I mean, the hosta here. Go figure. Like, it's like a jungle. And my friend Sass Colby, who's a painter, artist, bookmaker, and assemblage maker, this is her garden. And look at, like, she's just Miss Color USA, and look at her pieces. These are a new set of pieces she's doing with words, and they're not three-dimensional, they're two. She makes them like they just pop up. There's a canvas book of hers, but she wears the colors that are in her paintings. This would be my wonderful husband, and he makes bows for stringed instruments, and they go all over the world to musicians of uh, violins, cellos, and violas. And his studio is a whole different space. <clears throat> he has the Pernambuco wood ready to go, and of course there's a horsehair. Uh, right there. Not my horse's hair, I want you to know. <clears throat> but to make beauty requires a kind of stillness of place. <clears throat> and here, I love seeing messy studios. This is Alexander Cal Calder, you know, the sculptor and painter. I mean, look at the mayhem. I just love it. It makes me feel better. And then look at the simplicity and calm and beauty and stillness of that hanging sculpture. And, and as you see these, I'm sure you're wondering about your own spaces. Where do you go to find that stillness? And there's no right answer to that, you know. And of course, Juan Miro, look at that marvelous studio as he's sitting and just contemplating, contemplating, uh, you know, one painting. And he said a really beautiful thing. He said, if a canvas remains in progress for years in my studio, that doesn't worry me. On the contrary, when I'm rich in canvases which have a point of departure vital enough to set off a series of rhythms of new life, I'm happy. I consider my studio as a kitchen garden. Here there are artichokes, there there are potatoes, Leaves must be cut so that the full fruit can grow. At the right moment, I must prune. I work like a gardener. Things come slowly. Things follow their natural course. They grow, they ripen. I must graft, I must water. Ripening goes on in my mind. So I'm always working at a great many things at the same time. <clears throat> so in my class yesterday, some people were asking about, you know, how long, you know, gee, am I going to be able to, you know, long, long, long. Well, it takes its own time. Each piece takes its own time. And I love how he had us a lot of work going at the same time. Here's one of his pieces. So calm and beautiful. <clears throat> so 
I have a workspace I call the Poets Station. And uh, we, my husband moved into me in a 400 square foot house on the edge of the beach on the Olympic Peninsula, um, not far from where we ended up buying land and building a house. But 400 square feet is pretty small for two people when you're trying to work. He had a shop in, uh, in the neighborhood at the time. But living in that space, it became painfully evident that I needed a writing space. So we built a 10 by 14 studio. <clears throat> and uh, when we moved from the cottage, we built it on skids so that we could move it. And uh, here it is being moved from the little tiny, tiny place to our new home. I love that picture, but you're going to like this one even better. <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> the mover, he was so proud that he moved that little poet station without one crack in the walls or anything. And I show this to you only because it was so important to me to have this space that my husband said, we're building it on skids and we're moving it to the new, to the new house. And there it ended up, right there. And there it is uh, right now, this spring. Little moss on the roof. A new tree that, that's 12 years ago, I think we moved it. And here's my teeny tiny space. But you don't need an, a big space in order to do work, as you probably know. That would be Orville. That would be Wilbur sitting on the contract for my new book helping sign. That would be Orville again. So, I would like you to get out a pen and, and write just a few things about your workspace. I would like you to jot down a few notes about what's in there. What's in that space where you work? And if you work at the kitchen table, maybe the salt shakers on the table. That's totally cool. There's no right and wrong. But if you have a designated space for your writing, where is it? Could be an extra bedroom. It could be the garage. But I want you to write down five objects that exist in that room or that place. And if you don't have a specific place, then write down the coffee shop where you go. Or the library. Do you like to sit in the history section? The children's book section? Five objects. And if there is a window, what do you see out that window? Are there particular colors in that space that you like?
And then <clears throat> I'd like you to think about what might be missing. Something right now you think is missing from your writing space. <laughs> A lock. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> what is missing from that space? And then the last question about it, how does it make your body feel when you're in there? I'm serious. When you go in there, do you kind of go, ah, or do you go, oh, no, I have to work? Good. Would anybody like to share their five things? Five things in their studio that they can see on the desk? Or how about you? Too shy? Yeah. Um, oh. So what I've got is a soft blanket. Oh, good. Some, good plan. <laughs> <laughs> some cushions, uh-huh. uh, books. A candle and chocolate. Whoa, she's prepared. Lovely. Yes. Well, I um, write in different places, so I gave you, as you suggested, a list of places where I write. The student lounge of the music building. In my car with the top down, parked in a quiet neighborhood. In a recital hall waiting for the performance to start at a table in the bread garden. And then I might be at my desk when I'm actually inputting into the computer and revising. Fantastic, that's lovely. I can just tell by the way you were so proud of those places, they make you feel good when you go there. Like especially the one in uh, waiting for a concert to begin. That's lovely, yeah. Any other five places? Five things, I mean, I'm getting to the places now. Uh, I have, a, I live in just a 320 square foot space, so yep. that's my writing and everything else. Yep. <laughs> but it has a, I've done that. It has a bright blue um, uh, uh, gate leg table, a fresh linen candle, and it has a five by five window that looks out at Micah Mountain with nothing human made in the view shed. Uh-huh. Um, it has a leggy geranium. Excellent. <laughs> That's lovely. Does anybody look out on a really grubby scene, like a garage or yeah, yeah. Yeah, what do you look out at? Suburban parking lot. Suburban parking lot. <laughs> now you see you you would think, oh, too bad. No. There is a very, that is a very cool thing, I bet. Right, Jeremy? Yeah, drama. (laughs) All can be seen out there. Exactly. One more before we move on. Yes, in the back. A what? Yeah, 
Light rail train stop and the hospital. More drama. Really a great view. I know, because in the city, there's all these other things going on, right? It doesn't have to be bucolic. But it, you're smiling about it, so it sounds like you really like that view. Yeah, I can tell. That's excellent. So when we think about our places, it really it gives us a sense of um, belonging. I guess that's what we'd say, right? When we go in there, we are who we are. And so... <clears throat> In this, this class this week, which is called, funnily enough, Belonging, Geographies of Nonfiction, we are writing about the places we have lived, landscapes and houses, by starting with an emblematic moment that took place sometimes decades ago. We are learning how the place itself, the geography of a room, a town, or a prairie, has informed our interior life and experience. We are finding this week that just writing about a place isn't enough, but writing from it, from the sensory memories, the emblematic moments, the seemingly small scraps of memory, those, that's where the true details of our relationship to the place come. And so when we, when we think of writing from a place instead of, oh, I have to write just a description, whereas description actually does help us. How does it inform us? How does it affect our daily life? After living far away from my home landscape for decades, I returned to the Pacific Northwest, and I can surely say that my Olympic Peninsula landscape informs my poems and my nonfiction. I cannot say, however, that I'm always writing about the nearby Strait of Juan de Fuca, or the Salish sea waves that crash through my sleep, but I write from the place. The experiences we have in life don't always have to be recorded or fit into a novel, a story, or poem, even if they haunt us for years. Just as my colleague Eric Goodman mentioned in his 11th hour talk about an incident that hounded him for decades, and he couldn't fit it in exactly to a novel, but it informed his writing anyway. So whether we live in a city, suburb, Montana ranch, it's our job to be attentive to the experience. Yes, write it down. Maybe we won't use it, but we have to be open to all five senses. Some things we witness or happen to us are never going to be in a poem, but they work inside us, texturing our lives to be the writers we are becoming. If we're too busy having to right away use that experience, it might not do its deep work inside us. And Eric then read a beautiful passage from his new novel that actually <laughs> obliquely kind of addressed that experience, but he let that moment work inside him. What every true artist comes to know, I think, especially the great ones, is that the interface between ourselves and the world is its own vibrant canvas. <clears throat> I was just talking to Rachel before the talk about her son, Cohen, who pointed out that her hair was turning another color right here, right? I mean, what a great, like, mom, <laughs> how come that part of your hair is white? He's five, okay? And so you think about those moments of daily life, and if you're too busy uh, thinking about what you have to get done, 
or thinking of, oh, I got to use that, rather than actually experiencing Cohen's high hilarity moment, according to me, then, you know, we don't do it, do it justice. If we're awake, it will give us so much more, ex more than experience. It will help us, as Eric so eloquently said in his, in his talk, it will help us transform our lives into art in surprising and unexpected ways. But it really does start in dailiness, like Cohen handling his mother's hair. We crave to know more about how we can make our writing stronger. Yes, craft is important. But the true work doesn't come from whether we can write a perfect sonnet or execute an airtight plot. It's who we are and how each of us sees the world differently. I remember Denise Levertov, the poet, telling me years ago when I was a young poet, I'd rather see a clumsy poem with heat and life than perfect, a perfectly formed one. And that's kind of cool to remember, right? We're all trying to do the craft thing, which is important. That's why we're all here. We're trying to be better writers. And yet, it's the life in the poem, she said. It's the life in the poem that I'm looking for. So... <clears throat> There are things in daily life, and I want you to start as you're looking at these. What about your daily life? What about your cup of coffee in the morning? A daily thing. What are the smells? What are the colors? Do you have coffee alone with your spouse? Do you look out the window? Do you take your kids to the school bus stop? Do you have a spiritual practice or a temple or a church you go to? once a week or a practice every day? Is that part of the dailiness of your life? Are you a musician? Do you practice? What is your practice? Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's walking. My husband gets a lot of musicians coming to try his bow, bows, and it's just one of the most intoxicating things to be in my poet station and hear these players playing out my window. I mean, it's just incredible, especially if they're like, you know, the Emerson Quartet, you know, and it just, whoa. And this young woman was just delighted by the cello bow, took it home that night. And speaking of music, oh, look, there's my colleague, Sands Hall. I'm also a musician. And um, one of the things to remember when you're here in Iowa, the people that you really connect with here in your classes or wherever, wherever you are, you hold on to them. Because I met Sands Hall 15 years ago. We became fast friends. We both are musicians. We started playing music together. And... Um, one time, she flew out, we gave a reading together, and we put our music in the reading. She read from a novel, I think, and I, I, I read poems, and we actually did a whole musical uh, performance with it. Again, it was like claiming our whole lives uh, what we did. So hang on to your friends here who you've met. You have no idea how they may help you in, in, in the future. There's my husband's vegetable garden. That's a daily thing. It's kind of wild. My niece is picking potatoes. Is your family part of your daily life? Are your children still living at home? Are you taking them to, you know, lessons? These daily things. 
My niece, uh, Celia Rose, uh, is a poet. She's only 22, and so I invited her to give a reading with me last fall. And that was a whole different thing. She's off to Japan. She speaks fluent Japanese. I can't believe it. She's 22. She speaks fluent Japanese. Just have to brag a little bit. <laughs> and really, what are the dailiness things in your life in general? Right? That's my poet station. And I took this little video last week. Now, are you hearing? Are you hearing? Are you hearing? We're not hearing. Are you hearing? Peep, peep, peep. Those guys were in there last, just last week. And if you follow the rhythms of the birds near your house, you'd just be amazed at what happens. You didn't hear them go peep, peep, peep. Aren't they just so cute? Those are the Bewick wrens. And they have fledged, my husband told me yesterday. So if you think about it, write down five things in your daily life. Maybe it's the birds at your bird feeder. Maybe it's the coffee. Maybe it's getting your children dressed. What are the daily things that inform your life? Do you still get the physical newspaper, or do you pull it up on your phone? Do you go running, play basketball? Yes. Well, it's, is it already new? I can't see the end. You guys, thank you very, very much for coming. If you have more questions, it's fine. But.